Hi, this is Crystal Cyrus from the OOTW podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 202, Fright Night Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, welcome to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. This week, it's our 44th and final episode of season six. Hard to believe. After this, we're going to take a few weeks off over the Christmas holidays, and then we'll be back with season seven in 2022. But this episode, uh, it was actually over to me to nominate a film from 1985. That was the year of our most recent draft that we held. So I went with Fright Night. Starring Chris Sarandon, William Ragsdale, and Roddy McDowell. But before we get to the movie, we always like to spend a little bit of time sharing what we've experienced in the world of pop culture since our last time. So, Derek, you usually have something new for us. So, uh, me, I just tend to do the same Gen X stuff over and over again. But, uh, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris, I've got a few winners this week i watched a few different things and they were all great oh good some new ones some old ones some favorites uh and of course documentary but uh let's uh, let's dive right in sure so on last week's show i had talked about how i was watching lost in space season three on netflix and i had a couple episodes to go yes i i finished season three and it was fantastic and nice. as i suspected it was a wrap-up to the show. So if you have not watched last lost in space on Netflix, it is three definitive seasons and that's it. There's a lot of great content. There's a lot of great performances. It's a, a fun sci-fi action series. If you're familiar with the old lost in space series, it there's a lot of throwback, um, uh, retro stuff in there to sort of give you that little wink wink if you know about that stuff but it, it is very very much a, a strong standalone series so i strongly recommend lost in space season three just dropped on netflix and then that's it it's three and done um so i just wanted to start with that then i got uh, uh two movies in a documentary so one of the movies so if you remember you last have a week, lot of time on your hands I, uh, well not as much as you'd think but i make the time so last week I mentioned I had a Yancey pick on my list and I I watched Interstellar. This week I have another Yancey pick on my list. This one is No Country for Old Men. Oh, that was a pretty good one. Now, I can't remember what your feelings were about that. I thought but, it was good. I thought it was okay, good. but that, yeah. that's good because I rewatched it and as much as I remembered enjoying it, I didn't remember it being this good. I loved it. And I was very glad that I had a chance to revisit it because – as much as I thought I remembered the details of this film, rewatching it was a great experience. So if you have never seen No Country for Old Men or if you haven't seen it in a long time, if you have the opportunity to watch it again, I strongly suggest you take it. It, it really, really holds up. I thought it was really good. I was very happy to go revisit it. So that was my Yancey pick. So Yancey, 
Happy Holidays and Merry Christmas, buddy. That one was for you. Nice. All right. Brand new. Just released in the last couple of weeks on Apple TV. A new feature film starring Tom Hanks called Finch. Have you seen any of the trailers or previews for this? I've never even heard of it. Okay. So I was just, I is, heard Tom Hanks. I thought, oh, you did you watch Big? Like, what nope, was nope. <laughs> so uh, this may not appeal to you because it's sort of quote unquote post apocalyptic, which I know is not your favorite genre, but just our Tom Hanks and he does a very good job. Post apocalyptic so is not my bag, baby. I know, I know. So the basic premise for this is. Some sort of post-apocalyptic event has happened. They don't really fill you in on the details until much later in the film. Tom Hanks is a, we'll call him an engineer for lack of a better term. And he has built a, a couple of robots to sort of help him survive. And one of the robots he's sort of working on is like a humanoid robot that has artificial intelligence that he's trying to like teach. And so at the start of the movie, he basically finds the last pieces he needs to build his artificial robot And of course, circumstances being what they are, force him to leave where he is based, you know, he's in sort of relative safety, but events are such that he has to leave. And so the rest of the movie is him in a souped up Winnebago with a couple of these robots, including the one that's like a humanoid robot. And they're taking a cross country voyage to avoid the big bad thing. And the artificial intelligence is learning from him along the way. But at the same time, Tom Hanks's character is getting sicker and sicker and is clearly eventually going to die. It was great. I mean, if you watched Castaway and you thought Tom Hanks could have did a good job in that being all by himself with nothing but a volleyball, it's the same idea. It's Tom Hanks by himself with nothing but a robot. And it was really good. I mean, Tom Hanks is great. I mean, just, you know, love him or hate him. This guy is talented. And this movie Finch, which is on Apple TV, was fantastic. I would say if you got two hours, do yourself a favor and take a watch. It was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a very well done. You know what Tom Hanks was really good in? Bosom Buddies. <laughs> sure. And I don't remember party. it very well. And uh, Bachelor Party, unfortunately, I've never seen, which somebody recently just called me out on and said, because I think in a few, an episode a few back, we, we had talked about Bachelor Party mm-hmm. for some reason. And I said, oh, I've never seen it. And I got a message from one of my buddies who listens mm-hmm. to the show. And he said, how, as a movie aficionado, can you say you've never seen Bachelor Party? So we may have to watch that. We may have to watch that in the not too distant future just to, you know, complete my Tom Hanks education. But anyway, Finch on Apple TV starring Tom Hanks. Just dropped a couple of weeks ago. It's great. Take a look. And finally, mm-hmm. I watched a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. What, pray tell, was the documentary that you watched this week? So, Chris, this is actually a documentary you had mentioned in sort of an offhand comment in a casual mm-hmm. conversation we had had a few months back mm-hmm. and it just happened to show up in my listing. So I made sure to record so, it. And so watch I it. inspired you to watch a documentary. Yes, for a indeed you did. Oh, that's for, nice. For all the right and all the wrong reasons. The oh, documentary oh no. is called skin, a history of nudity in the movies. Yes. I had mentioned that just kind of briefly. I think we talked about it off air. Yeah. And uh, I found it on like Tubi or something like that. So what do you think? I mean, there's well, nudity I mean, in I, it. So, Hey, 
I know how much you love boob, boob movies of the 80s, so I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. well, I can see why Chris recommended that's, this. That's my groove, you know? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so it's a documentary from 2020. It's actually quite long. It runs two hours and 10 minutes, give yeah. or take. And I think it was running on Crave here in Canada, so I had a chance to record it and watch it back. And it, it literally, it starts off with, like, movies at the turn of the 19th, uh, into from the 1900s, like, Pardon me, from the early 1900s. That's what got me about it. Like, yeah, I, I think of like nudity in films of being like kind of in the 70s and then really in the 80s. But when you watch it, you're like, whoa, there was a lot of nudity in films way before that. Yeah. You know, it was like, like it was the 1910s, shocking. the 1920s, yeah. the 1930s. And it talked about like the progression of what was allowed, what was not allowed, why it was taboo, what was considered artistic and what was, you know, how the different companies were able to cash in on it versus how different people with political agendas and and moral objections were able to suppress some of it. And although it wasn't necessarily an absolute complete picture of history uh, of nudity in the movies, it, it I felt it provided a very good cross section of it, especially in those first say 20 to 30 to 40 years until it got to about the 70s. And then I felt that they really had to pick a lane because there was just so much through the seventies, eighties and nineties that there's no way they would have been able to cover everything in a two hour documentary. But I did find it very interesting that they had a tremendous amount of interviews, um, with With movie crit. Well, starting off with like movie critics, movie historians, journalists. And then as they got into the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, they actually talked to a lot of the performers and especially a lot of the women performers and Mm -hmm. women directors and, and agents, casting agents, things of that nature to talk about like, well, how did things work in those particular time periods, good, bad, and otherwise. And, and believe me, this is not necessarily painting a positive picture across the board. There was a lot of problems with the nudity in movies and they don't shy away from it. I mean, I don't necessarily, they think they dig too deeply into the negative, but I think they do a fairly good job of indicating like, this wasn't all hearts and roses. Like there was definitely some exploitation. There were people that were taken advantage of, but based on those problems in more recent years, they've been able to address them. I'm not saying they've solved the problems, but people are now more aware of some of the issues that we've had in the past as any good documentary should do. It should teach you about, you know, you can't, you can't correct mistakes if you don't learn from them. And they, they start to talk about how things are changing for the better not saying they they're perfect but they're changing for the better in large part based on some of the problems they had in the past and how people are now acknowledging those problems but it was interesting i mean and hey there was a ton of boobs in it like a ridiculous <laughs> amount but not in a way where you're like All right i'm in God, it's a porno movie it was just they showed a lot of clips from a lot of movies where there was a lot of females taking off their clothes and it was 99% females. Although there were a few, few male performers. They talked about, um, Harvey Keitel did a lot of full frontal nudity oh, and the piano. Uh, I think it was right. And what was the guy from clockwork orange? Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. He was in a quick, because of Caligula, right? Yeah. And, and clockwork orange and a few other, I think it was a movie called if where he's like Richard Gere did it in, um, American Richard, gigolo. Yes. Yeah. And so it's not, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to mislead you. It is 99% women with their clothes off, but they they do touch on the fact that some men did perform nude scenes and it was more than just their butt or their chest and it's sort of incorporated into it. So if you have a chance to find this one, it's called Skin and then Brackets, A History of Nudity in the Movies. 
although it is very long and I actually had to watch it in like three or four sittings because it was just, Oh my God, this documentary is really, really long. It was good. I, I yeah. really, I did the same thing. I just watched like a little bit at a time. I'm only about halfway through, but it, do they show uh, Phoebe Cates scene from, from fast times? Yeah. Cause they, that's the greatest the nude scene in yeah. the history of film. At the beginning of the movie, they do sort of like a three or four minute montage where they talk about like, these are some of the most famous movie nude scenes. And that was one of them. And then when they eventually get to the eighties, they talk about, and one of the things they talk about is like, when was the nudity absolutely gratuitous and not, not necessary versus when was it used in a movie in a way that made sense for the script and, and added to the story. And, and that was the real sort of litmus test was, is it just some dirty old man who's a casting agent or a director who wants to see a pretty young girl without her Ross top? Myers, for example. Well, there's a, unfortunately there are a ton of examples. Yeah. But then they do talk about some scenes where the nudity actually adds to it, whether it's a comedy, whether it's a drama, whether it's a horror film, whatever it might be. There are definitely some very, very strong examples where they talk about how the nudity added to the scene in one way or the other. Again, I'm not saying that is always the case because it is absolutely not always the case, but the documentary tries to present sort of multiple sides to the argument. So anyway, if you can find it, Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies, fact, it's actually yeah, pretty good. Just back to Fast Times for a second because it's a, it's an interesting one because it's got sort of that gratuitous scene, scene that everybody thinks of, you know, Phoebe Cates getting out of the pool. But there was a lot of scenes in that in that movie where nudity was very uncomfortable. And yeah, that's what made it realistic because it was like really uncomfortable to watch some of those scenes. So yeah, no, that's that's good. I got to go back and watch the rest yeah. of that one. And they even talk about how in Fast Times the scenes, mm. the scene where um, Damone and I can't remember the girl, the, Stacey. the Stacey, Stacey Hamilton, where they have they have sex in the pool house. Yeah, and they talk about how originally it was shot a certain way, where you actually got to see the guy naked as well. And when it went to the review board, they're like, absolutely not. You can show the girl all you want, but the guy's stuff cannot be shown. So the director had to recut the scene in a way that wasn't because Fast Times is directed by a woman. And she was like, I don't necessarily. Yeah, yeah, she's like, I don't necessarily agree with this, these notes, but she's like, I got to get this movie out. Like, Mm -hmm. we got to make some money off of this. So she did recut it. And and they talked to her about it. And she's like, say, says like how. It didn't work out the way she wanted it, but she had to do what she could to, re- to sort of save the movie. And unfortunately, that's the theme that you see over and over again, where it's tried to be done tastefully. It's tried to be done with a more even hand. And of course, some dirty old man says, no, no, no. All we want to see is the girl's boobs. And it's like it was the 70s or it was the 80s. And it's like that's the way things were. That was the power dynamic. And fortunately for the better, that doesn't happen as much now. But the world being what it is, it does still happen, unfortunately. So, so Derek, I, I, I recently had to get together for a family Christmas gathering. Oh, and boy. <laughs> I have mentioned before how, how these things usually go for me. Uh-huh. I'm usually stuck in a house with a bunch of right-wing extremists. So I just tend to go upstairs into the spare room and I just watch TV by myself. So that's what I did. So I'm sitting in this room upstairs and I'm by myself and I was watching On Golden Pond on cable TV. Why? I mean, it was on, and I got to tell you, man, damn, that's an amazing film. Like, I, my God, it's so good. And then my wife's cousin comes in, and, and he's he's young, right? And he comes and he goes, he goes, hey, I know this movie. My grandpa made me watch this once, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like bracing for the worst. And he goes, this movie is awesome. It's so good. And I was like, 
you know what? Sometimes millennials get it right, Derek. See, that made me feel real good. Well, I, I've never seen it. And honestly, it's ah, not, well, a, then what are you it's you know, not a movie I feel compelled to see in any way. Everything so I've read and seen about it just is like, I know it's not going to be something I'm going to enjoy. So I don't know, man. Hard I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it was fan and, and watching it again made me realize how fantastic it was. It was really, really good. But anyway, uh, time to move on. So here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week. So, <clears throat> Derek, it's pretty fair to say that you've been less than impressed with my dad jokes recently. You, you made that. I, uh, that is a very <laughs> fair statement. So you mentioned that, you know, I've had some good ones. And that but my latest ones have all been really, really bad, really lame. So I think you just like the naughty ones. I don't know. But anyway, so I need to, I need to set this one up a little bit. So, okay. Up here in Canada, we have what's known as Newfie jokes. So basically okay. what we do is we, we make jokes about people that live in Newfoundland. And the idea being that they're a simpler people. You know, and, and that's and, a kind way of putting it. Chris. Still not politically correct, no, but it's a kind way of putting it. But Newfie jokes usually imply that Newfies aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. We'll say right now. Now, I've never been one to perpetuate stereotypes, but we all like a good Newfie joke up here in Canada. And, and, and again, the thing is, you got to keep in mind, it's not just about picking on Newfies. I mean, I think the premise of the joke is just to poke fun at people that are a few bricks short of a load. Not that that makes it any better. But anyway, uh, it's an age-old joke premise, I think, regardless of your culture or background or where you live. So I, I think people can relate to the whole idea. So I always like to try to incorporate pop culture into the dad jokes when I can. So so here we go. So Derek, did you hear about the newfies that died at the drive-in theater? Oh, I did not. And I'm kind of worried where this is going. <laughs> they froze to death when they went to see the movie closed for the winter. Jeez. Yes. I, I, there are no words, man. There are no words. <laughs> They're dumb. They went to see closed for the winter. They thought it was a movie. I, I've seen that documentary. It's not as bad as you think. <laughs> I was the only man left on the planet after the Holocaust, eh? Because you're probably drunk. That's why I just spent all my time looking for beer. Save me one of those beers. No way, eh? Experience and maturity. I gotta um, take a leak so bad I can taste it. I don't know how they got him to do it. You drive. There's a lot of cops around. It was a different time. No, no, I've had, I've had enough beer. Some of the things from the early 80s, it's, it's hard to relate to them now. Oh, come on. That's some funny s*** right there. <laughs> all right, Derek, uh, last time out, you picked Real Genius as your movie from 1985. And this time it was my turn. <clears throat> I was thinking about going with another comedy since I really like Summer Rental with John Candy. And that was from 85. But I decided to go in a completely different direction. And I know you're not a huge horror film fan. But I don't think that this movie is actually like a total horror movie. And I went with Fright Night starring uh, Chris Sarandon and William Ragsdale and Roddy McDowell. To me, it's always been more of like a send-up of horror movies. Kind of like what Scream did in the 90s. You know what I mean? Um, it was directed by Tom Holland, and this was his feature film debut as a director, by the way. Um, before that, he was like a writer and an actor, mostly on TV. He was, I remember he was in an episode of uh, The Incredible Hulk, the one with Bill Bixby. And he was in the TV uh, miniseries, The Winds of War. And then after directing Fright Night, 
he went on to direct the first Child's Play, another send-up of horror movies, really. But other than that, like, he didn't do a whole lot else. But I saw this movie back when it first came out in 1985 in the movie theater. I was 15 years old, and I loved it. And the thing was, I didn't fully appreciate at the time how it worked on a few different levels until I got older and started to, you know, really get into film and, you know, appreciate, you know, more of the genres and, you know, the the the, the, the homages that, that often appear in movies. And for me, that's certainly the case here. <clears throat> now, we're going to get into all this, I'm sure. But Derek, I'm interested to hear your take on this movie. So uh, did you see it like back when it first came out? Like, have you seen it since? Like, what did you think of it? So take it away. So the movie's from 1985. Yes. I probably saw it in the late 80s or early 90s. I would say probably late 80s on video. I definitely did not see it in the theater. As I've mentioned before, I spent a lot of summers visiting my cousins, and we watched a lot of ridiculous movies when we were together. And this definitely would have been one that I had watched with them for the first time. And you're right. I mean, as far as horror movie goes – it's not your standard scare type of horror movie. It's more of that horror movie with it's more of like a thriller, more of like a little bit of a wink wink if you know about the horror movie tropes. And it's almost tame by horror movie standards, especially considering what other horror movies were out in the early 80s. You have things like the Halloween franchise, the the Friday the 13th franchise, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Like those are more like slasher movies, gore movies. This one was not as reliant upon jump scares or excessive amounts of blood or a huge body count. Like this one tried to be more along the lines of like really and honestly, it's more of a like a parody or an homage to to Dracula. Like it it certainly Mm -hmm. as a vampire movie follows a lot of the same beats as the Dracula story, which I'm sure we'll get into. And I remember watching it as a younger kid and thinking like enjoying it. But as much as I disliked horror movies i didn't necessarily feel this was a horror movie capital h horror movie i mean it certainly is in the sense that it's got a monster and there's like some blood and stuff and some some killing but to me it just seemed more like a sort of drama slash action with a little bit of horror thrown in now i've seen it a few times over the years and as i got older and as i saw more and more films i really started to appreciate the um you know, the fact that it was more of a send up or an homage or a spoof. Well, not really a spoof. That's probably the wrong word, but um, that it sort of played on these. these <laughs> that's conventions. what I was thinking. That's what I yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like it played on the conventions. And it's like the more you actually know about horror movies and the genre as a whole, I think the more you're going to enjoy this. Now, on its face, this is certainly not my favorite movie. It's definitely not something that I would deliberately choose to watch again and so when you asked me to watch it i did but i found i actually had a pretty good memory for most of it um I, again it, it's one of these ones that sort of shows up on cable from time to time and because it's kind of tame for an 80s horror movie you actually see it on channels like amc where normally amc is known for cutting out a lot of the gratuitous violence and nudity and swears and and things of that nature and given that it's it's sort of tame nature, it really doesn't need a lot of editing based on today's standards. Now, at the time when it came out in the 80s, it, of course, would have required a ton of editing. But 
it's one of these ones that does show up from time to time, especially like around Halloween where they're trying to be like, well, what can we show that's a horror movie that maybe isn't that graphic? This one actually relies a lot on the viewer's imagination. Things are implied rather than shown. Um, they use they use the camera work and and the audio and and the the perception of the character to imply certain things without actually showing them. And from that point of view, I actually thought it was kind of fascinating when I was rewatching it. But but no, on its on its face, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. It had some problems, but it had some things to like. And I think as we go through it, I, I can talk a little bit about, about more of those things. It had a budget of about $8 million and it made $25 million at the domestic uh, U.S. box office. It, that was good enough to finish 32nd in 1985. It's funny it's enough, it, it finished right ahead, one spot ahead of Summer Rental, you know, that no. had, had 24-6. And just finished ahead of Weird Science and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, so I mean, it wasn't a huge hit, but I mean, it opened wide release and it, it, it did quite well. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of good movies that year, that's for sure. But one of the things I like to do uh, around here is we like to take a look at some of the cast. And I, and I, I wanted to do that here as well. So uh, Chris Sarandon, when you do a lot of movie reviews like we do, we, we tend to pick up on a little little things that go on. And we've obviously really had the chance to to see how common it is for directors to use the same actors in a lot of their films. Yes. And Chris Sarandon, obviously, is Jerry Dandridge. He's the vampire in this movie. And he was also cast in Tom Holland's next movie, in Child's Play. Now, Really? I yeah. don't remember him in Child's Play. Oh, I haven't seen... So I saw Child's Play in the theater, and that's okay. the one and only time I've ever seen it. So, honestly, I don't remember Chris Sarandon being in it. Yeah, he was the cop. Um, okay. He's probably best known for playing Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Of Planet, course. You know? But Dial came powder. I would bet my life on it. I would say, though, his best work on film was probably in Dog Day Afternoon back in 75. He got an Oscar nomination for that, for Best never Supporting Actor. Oh, he's never so good. I know, I know of it. I've never seen it. And the thing is, Derek, you often make comments about how good-looking some actors are. Back in his prime, Chris Sarandon, he was a seriously good-looking guy. Oh, my God. He oh, looks great oh, in this film. He, he finds unnecessary reasons to take off his shirt yeah and yeah for the 80s i mean obviously the way men looked in the 80s versus the way men look today are very different yeah but for an 80s guy he is super hot and yeah, he, he looks great he's, he's a good he, looking he doesn't look any better than he's ever looked in this film I so know. if i was him in this circumstance i would take my shirt off as well yeah but the thing is like he's good looking he's been nominated for an oscar and he was in one of the most beloved movies of all time in The Princess yeah. Bride. But he never seemed to reach stardom. Like, no. Not as a huge movie star, you know? But anyway, so he was married to Susan Sarandon back in the 70s. That's where she got her name from. I was just about to say, the best thing he ever did was attach his name to Susan Sarandon. Well, she took his name. And then she started to gain some attention. Like, she was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and stuff. And they got divorced in 79. But, you know, like I say, she'd already made a name for herself. So she just kept that name. Actually, he's married to um, Canadian actress Joanna Gleason now. They've been married for quite a while. She's the daughter of Monty Hall from Let's Make a Deal. She was Dirk Diggler's mom in Boogie Nights, if you remember that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah okay. That's, that's his way. I'm like, I'm, I'm just looking her up. I'm like, who yeah. are you talking about? As soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, my God, I know exactly who yeah. that is. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I think he was perfectly cast as Jerry Dandridge. Like, like he's, he's super good looking. But the thing is, he has this kind of sinister thing going on. Like, he can come off as a little scary, 
You know what I mean? I just, I think yeah. he was perfectly cast. So um, I think the casting overall is one of the strong points of this film, but I think we'll get more to that in a bit. But Derek, I have a question. They remade this movie a few years ago. Have you yes, seen they did. the remake? Yes, I have. So I'll tell you what. I wouldn't watch that movie if you paid me to. Let's just be obvious. On, on, you know, honest here, we know. That's me. Wasn't Colin Farrell in it? Did He, he, he played was. the vampire, right? He paid, He played Jerry. Jerry's a terrible vampire name. He played so Jerry. How does, girl, he, how does he compare to Chris Sarandon? What was Chris Sarandon well, doing in this role? So the remake starred, uh, again, I don't have the numbers, I don't have the list in front of me, but from memory, it had um, Colin Farrell as the vampire. Mm -hmm. It had um, Anton Yelchin, who you might remember as Chekhov in the reboot of Star Trek. He nice. played the the Charlie Brewster role. And it had um, David Tennant, who is probably best known as one of the doctor, is probably, you know, fan favorite, the best Doctor Who of recent years, in the Roddy McDowell role as, as Peter Vincent. And it was an interesting reimagining of how would you take this IP that came out in 1985 and make it appropriate for a 2000s, 2010s type. I can't remember the year it came out. I think it was like 2008, 2009. How would you make it appropriate for that audience, given how horror movies have changed in that time? And I think they did actually a really good job of trying to update the material. The problem was the material wasn't great to begin with. And what? I think, I think and, the script was amazing in this film. Well, of course it was Dracula, but, um, oh, man. but one of the things I think that the new version did was in the, uh, that the original did. So in the original, I think Chris Sarandon and I think Chris Sarandon thought he was in a different movie than everyone else. Cause he was the one for it with his performance. He thought he was going to win an Oscar. He wasn't holding like, back. Was he, he was, was taking it. this so seriously. <laughs> and that's part of when you look at it now makes it a little bit humorous, but when they did the read, that's the point though. I, mean, I, I do think that's the point. I think that's part of what actually works for this movie. Yeah. But I think in the remake, none of the actors took it seriously, and it came yeah. across like they all sort of were like winking at yeah. the camera, like, not, hey, wink, wink, look at me. I'm a vampire. Right. Wink, wink. And but I think it worked because I think when it came out, it was it was following on movies like the screen. Obviously, screen came out in the mid 90s, but it followed on that kind of movie where you had horror movies that were horrific. And then you had horror movies that were um, very cognizant of what horror movies needed to be to work. And and the remake of Fright Night very much fell into that second category where they were all like, well, we know this is a remake. We know this is a send up. We know this is an homage. We know this is sort of a cash grab. Let's just have some fun with it. And but see, they did that with with. OK, so I've mentioned before, I like Piranha from 1978. I think it's a fantastic film. And the thing I liked about it was it's a send up of Jaws. Mm -hmm. But it also like. It also takes itself a little bit seriously in a way. Whereas when they remade that a couple of years ago with the, uh, who's the fat kid from uh, Stand By Me? Then he got all Oh, Jerry O'Connell. Yeah. So he was in it, right? And then it was all like, like same thing. Like we're all winking at the camera. We all know this is just a big spoof. And that's what ruined it. Like, it, uh, just, I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's a matter of knowing your audience. I think in the late 2000s, early 2010s, the audience they were going for was a younger audience that mm. had a certain amount of movie knowledge and understanding that in the 80s you didn't expect your audience to have. And so I think they had to play it sort of that wink wink. They weren't playing it for laughs, but they had to play it with sort of that 
half wink, sly smile, kind of like we, we know, you know, and you're in on the joke kind of thing, but not in a ha ha kind of way and more of a watch how we make this clever. And so, I mean, again, the remake wasn't 10 out of 10. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't great, but I think the performers they got really understood like, we're not winning Oscars for this. Let's just have a good time with it. Let's really go for it. And they did. Whereas in this original one, like Chris Sarandon is like, he's playing it for real. Mm-hmm. And Roddy McDowell, I know you've talked about this in the, you know, we mentioned this before. You think Roddy McDowell was at his absolute best in this. Yes. And he certainly, he certainly turned in a good performance. I don't necessarily think he deserved an Oscar. And I know you're going to contradict me on this, but he was very good in this given what he had to work with and given the role he played, I think he did a great job. He was amazing in the role of Peter Vincent. And, and, and yes, it's a send up. Yes. It's sort of satirical in nature. And, and, and let's be honest, this is, you know, Roddy McDowell's best known for playing a monkey in Planet yeah. Earth, but I don't care about any of that stuff. Roddy McDowell gives an Oscar worthy performance here. And the thing is, here's why it could have just been this shallow one dimensional performance. Mm-hmm. But he injects it with so much. And, and, and if you think about the, the other actors that were nominated for Best Supporting Actor that year, okay, there was Don Amici for Cocoon. He won. And, and I get it. I mean, you know, he was getting that Oscar no matter That was what. a legacy Oscar, though. Yeah, they gave yeah. him that for his body of work. I mean, I mean, his role in Cocoon was pretty good, but it wasn't it was okay. worthy. I mean, yeah. he got that, like you say, it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. And yes. Klaus Maria Brandauer, uh, he was nominated for Out of Africa. Which one best picture? Sure. But I mean, William Hickey and Robert Loja's roles in um, Pritzi's Honor and Jagged Edge, they were they were kind of forgettable. And Eric Roberts for Runaway Train. Are you telling me what Roddy McDowell did with Peter Vincent was less of a performance than Eric freaking Roberts? Like, I don't well, think so, man. But it was a horror movie, right? It's like it's like that old thing where it's like if you're in a comedy you're not getting an Oscar. And so when Kevin Klein won for a fish called Wanda, like that was a big deal because nobody ever wins for comedy. And I think it's the same with horror movies. Roddy McDowell was never going to get nominated for this just based on the politics at the time, even still to this day, I would think about how the Academy decides who gets nominated. But you know, I, I don't disagree with you that he should have been in the running. I think that he should have been given a fair shake and I'm sure again, I was young, so I don't remember, but I got to think that he was dismissed out of hand simply because, oh, it's a horror movie. Why should we take it seriously? He did win a Saturn Award. That's the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. And he won that for Best Supporting Actor that year. Sure. But that seems to be a little more fan. Mm-hmm. In my understanding, yeah. it tends to be a little more fan driven. And, and sci-fi fans are usually a lot more uh, forgiving. And like they, they look past some of the the ridiculousness of what a script has it, from its sort of sci-fi horror fantasy um, tropes in order to actually see the performer and how they do in it. William Ragsdale, I thought was pretty good in that the role as Charlie Brewster. The only two things I've ever seen him in are this, and there was a show on Fox. Remember when Fox first became a TV network? Remember they started yep. with like the Simpsons and <laughs> married with children and, but there was this short lived show on Fox called Herman's head. Yeah, I remember it. I remember watching it. It was basically this guy and then he'd like get into these situations where there were like people living inside his head that would decide like what decisions. He, it was really stupid, but he was in that. It, it was basically like the Pixar movie Inside Out where 
the the emotions and feelings you have in your mind were personified into characters, except it wasn't nearly as good as the Pixar movie. And not that I really cared for the Pixar movie, right. but still the premise of the Pixar movie was fantastic. This was a very early precursor to how might you do that? What I found most, uh, what I remember most about this Herman's Head show was the fact that the four characters they they cast as the the personification of his emotions tended to be more interesting than him and the yes. situations he was in. And I know one of the characters, one of the performers they had in Herman's head was the uh, Yardley Smith, who does the voice of Lisa Simpson. Yes. And I remember a couple of Simpsons episodes. They actually did a shout out. Like there's one where Lisa says something and then laughs and they go, what are you laughing at? She goes, Oh, I'm just remembering a joke I heard on Herman's head. <laughs> Which now you watch it and you're like, nobody gets that reference. But at I the time, to, it was like, wink, wink, I'm in that show too. I seem to recall that one of the girls in the head too was in, um, was from some kind of wonderful. She was like one of the bad girl, like one of the, the popular teenage girls. But anyway, neither here nor there. Don't know, never watched it. Also want to mention Stephen Jeffries, the guy that played Evil. Uh, oh, I want to talk about him too. He yeah, was in Fraternity ahead. Vacation. and That had movie? I love that movie. That's yeah. one of my all-time favorite 80s boob movies. Oh, yeah? Oh, you like that one? It is so good. It is. I mean, it, I'm sure it doesn't stand up. But again, I remember as a young person in the 80s visiting my cousins in the summer. And this was one of the ones. Their local video store did not have a good selection of stuff. So we tended to re-rent the same movies over and over again. And that movie, Fraternity Vacation, there was one summer where I think we kept it all summer. Every week we just go back and re-rent it. And at the time we were very young and I'm sure there's a lot of jokes that we didn't really understand, but it had a lot of nudity. And as you know, four prepubescent teenage boys were like, you're all in with the boobs. <laughs> but uh, there's a, that, that fraternity vacation movie had a lot of very funny jokes and memorable quotes. And so when this came out, we were like, Oh, it's that guy. And so that's where I always remember him from is this and fraternity vacation. He was also in at close range with, um, Sean Penn and Christopher Walken. I, I've I never seen that, that one, but there was another one he did where they were um, like choir boys or altar boys or something. I that can't remember. Heaven Help was, Us. Was that it? Yeah, Heaven Help Us. He was. I remember that. again, he wasn't in it that much, but there was no. like a couple of really funny scenes where he was in that. And again, at the time, I didn't really get the joke, but years later, rewatched it and went, oh my God, that's a lot funnier than I ever remember it being once you understand a little more of the sexual connotations. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised that guy didn't really break well, out more because well, it seems like he, well, he was given some opportunities. He was, and then, well, he certainly had a, a unique energy and was mm -hmm. it was a very unique guy. But I think one of the, the he did sort of break out because uh, he went into gay porn. Oh my. Wow. Bit of, a, bit of a surprise career move, but that's what he did. <laughs> not hey, man, love is love. If that's what you want to do, I mean, if that's your predilection, go for it. Hey, but whatever. Um, yeah. Okay, so this movie we want to talk about, uh, you you mentioned already, and I, I want to revisit this. Some of the, the, the vampire tropes that they bring up, because it really is a send-up. So, um, you know, I, but I think it's more than just a send-up. You know, it's instead of just being a, a satire or a parody... Like we mentioned, I think this movie goes for the gold, you know, like it's, it's gold. It certainly tries. Yeah. It certainly tries. Great special effects. Practical well, special whoa, whoa, effects. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know. I think great is a little bit of a too strong word. I think in, no sorry, what year was this, 85? Yeah. I think the effects were, we'll call the them Practical decent. special effects were great. It's not that we'll call, well, Hold crap. on, hold on. We'll call them decent. Ah. The, some of the, the quote-unquote monster makeup was ridiculously bad. I mean, not bad in the sense that it was applied poorly, in that 
The design was bad. Like the teeth on these characters weren't even straight. Like, come on. I get that this was a stylistic choice, but there was ridiculous. And there was no mistaking the fact that these were people in rubber masks. But I did feel that the movie was did what it did right was there was a lot of times where a special effect or a prop or a makeup or a something could have easily been thrown into the scene and they chose not to include it, but to just imply it. And I found in many cases that actually helped the movie, especially with the vampire, with Chris Randall's character as the vampire, whenever he needed to fly or in some cases where he would like use his powers, they didn't actually show anything. There was just a musical cue or the camera moved in a way where it's like, Oh, we're supposed to be seeing it from his POV, but they never actually showed a prop. They never actually showed a bat flying or a man transforming into a bat. And I thought that was really clever. It was a way to mm. obviously a way to save money, but I think it helped the movie. It's like that whole jaws thing where yeah, the longer you don't see the shark, the more scary it is when you eventually do see it. And again, I don't know what the, decision-making was if this was a cost-saving measure or if this was a deliberate choice, but I think it actually really helped the movie because you don't actually see a lot of this sort of quote-unquote special effects in the vampire stuff until like the last 20 to 25 minutes of the movie. So the, um, the vampire tropes in this, I made a list of them. Like I didn't realize how many there are. Fire away. So, oh, so holy water. Yep. I understand why they would use holy water because like vampires are supposed to be evil. Right. So sure. holy water would be bad, you know, for them. But in, in in the scene where Peter Vincent gets him to drink the holy water, it's just tap water. Right. But Dandridge takes the vial and he holds it by the fire. Mm-hmm. What was up with that? Well, like, I, was, think, I think was that way to, to see if it was like actually holy water or like to mitigate the effects of the holy water in case it was real. Like, what was that? I think the idea was if it was holy water and he boiled it, it would purify it just like it would if it was tainted or contaminated because for a very brief second you see the water boiling again it's it's unrealistic because to boil water you would need to hold it over that flame for a lot longer right but i i think that was the implication because although he had said oh it'll just be tap water you can drink it as a vampire he knows if it happens to be real i'm gonna get screwed here right so i think that was his his insurance policy of if it's tap water no harm no foul no problem if it's really holy water, I need to make sure that it's not going to hurt me because that will, you know, that'll pull the curtain back from this ruse and they'll know immediately that I'm a vampire. Another trope. Vampires don't cast a reflection in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So this plays out when uh, Danrich comes into the house to meet the mom and Charlie yes. looks in the mirror in the living room and he, and he doesn't appear in it. And then later in that great scene when yes. Peter Vincent has him drink the tap water and Vincent's leaving and looks in his little pocket mirror. And the little cigarette thing with the yeah, mirror Yeah, and he's like, oh my God, he doesn't cast a reflection. And then also in the disco club, it looks like she's dancing alone. If you remember, yeah. there was that. Okay. But now another, hold on, Chris. Yep. If you remember, and we've talked about this multiple times before, where in the movie earlier, before the scene where Peter Vincent opens up the cigarette thing and sees, or doesn't see the reflection in the mirror, about 20 minutes earlier, he talks about how Oh, in this movie, I did this thing and I still have the prop. And he literally pulls it out and shows them. Yes. And that's that clearly, you know, again, it's it's that whole idea of, well, if you're going to go to all the trouble mm-hmm. to show me this prop, it better pay off. And sure enough, it does. It and it's a yeah. very important plot point. It is. And so, again, that's great script. Whether great you, script. Yeah. I mean, whether you call it a great storytelling or whether you 
call it like, oh my God, of course. Um, I, I, think I thought that just, was good. I think, I think, I think that really helped script. it. I, yeah, I that's, that's exactly that. it. Yeah. Um, so another one is vampires can't enter your house unless they're invited in. Right. So remember Charlie comes home from school and yeah. Andrew's sitting in his living room and his mom invited him in for coffee. And the yep. movie totally plays it up too. Cause Danridge says, what's the matter, Charlie? You don't, you don't think I'd come over without being invited first. Do you? Right. <laughs> and right. then he's like, now that I've been invited, I'll drop by all the time. Anytime at all. <laughs> it's just like so with fun. your mother's permission. <laughs> yeah. Of course. He just plays up that whole thing. So another one is the cross. Yeah. So apparently though, it only works if you have faith. This was the first movie I ever saw that added that stipulation. And honestly, as as like a Dungeons and Dragons nerd who plays fantasy games mm -hmm. where there's undead and vampires and zombies and stuff, this is not something that is ever usually included in the in the mythos or in the mythology of of vampires. So I actually thought this was a clever addition. And I don't know if it had been done before this, mm. but this is the first one I excuse me that I ever remember where the vampire yes the vampire was affected by the cross but only if the person holding up the cross had faith in it and i thought that was so yeah. clever because the the one character is like the the peter vincent character is so terrified that he holds it up as a desperation measure and the vampire simply says like i'm not afraid of that because i'm not afraid of you and you don't have any you don't even believe in this cross you don't believe in anything you're so you're so fearful go but I wonder, if, I wonder if the level of the vampire mattered too, because later in the movie, um, Vincent puts it on evil's forehead and it burns a hole in his forehead. Remember? Right. And yeah, exactly. And so I think, I yeah. think the idea there is partly that evil is like a minion of the main vampire, a spawn or whatever you right. want to call it. And so he's probably more susceptible to these things. Yeah, Plus evil, evil being new to this, doesn't necessarily understand that the the power is in the presenter, not mm -hmm. the object. Again, you're re we're really reading into yeah. to get to this. But point. it's kind of cool. Uh, uh, but yeah. So another one: vampires are very strong. Mm -hmm. And Dandridge at one point throws Charlie around his bedroom like he's a rag doll. Remember, and then he grabs his hand and he's like crushing it. And, and he, he flips open the window after it's been nailed shut. Just yes. with a, with a you quick see the whoosh. nails come out and he pulls yep. the, the mom's bedroom door so hard it gets like stuck in the door jam. Yeah. And then at near the end when he runs his finger along the wooden banister and his fingernail like I always like that. I always like that. Yeah. It's, it was a nice little touch. Yeah. Yeah. So another one, vampires sleep in a coffin during the day and of course dad rich and his friend are seen bringing the coffin into the house at the beginning of the movie mm. and at the end of the movie he goes into the coffin right the the sunlight he tries to yeah ultimately what kills him so another one is vampires are charming and yes. this plays up in this movie like he seduces amy when he stalks her in the nightclub and she gives into him and he convinces evil to join him he, remember he even charms the mom right yeah the classic well, so Hang on. Let, yep. So again, being someone who plays a lot of these games and the the, the role playing games and stuff, mm -hmm. often the way this is described as the is the vampire actually has like a magic power or something where they can charm their their person with with like you know I look you in the eyes and I have charmed you I have be beguiled you I have bewitched you I have taken control of you and I think that is definitely leaned upon when he. Um, 
when he uh, uh, seduces, uh, is it Amy? Is that her name? I can't mm-hmm. remember off the top of my head. Where, you know, it's like, it's clear that she may originally have hesitations, but clearly he's used his his beguiling magic upon her. And uh, so, yeah, this, but again, this this harkens back to to Dracula, to Bram Stoker's Dracula. He ta- like, this is a clearly a part of that story as well. Yeah, the, the classic stake through the heart. That's always mm-hmm. been a, a classic. And it works on evil. In, in a great scene, which we'll come back to in a bit, because I love that sure. scene. Um, but when Danrich is asleep in the coffin during the final battle at the, the end of the movie, he gets the stake in the heart, but it doesn't kill him. Remember, he stands mm-hmm. straight up and then he pulls it out. So yeah. that was, uh, I guess they threw that out. But um, the, the other thing too was, was sexuality. And there, Very much. there always seems to be this sexual element. To vampires. I don't know if it's like the biting on the neck or the drinking the blood or like, and, and of course, you know, as we mentioned, what, what 80s movie would be complete without boobs? You know, of course. Get appearance, so there's that. But I remember that, that scene when Danrich is in the window with this gorgeous woman who yes. just happens to take off her dress, of course, because it's the 80s, you know. And then the thing is, Amy, we know at the beginning of the movie, she's a virgin. But yes. When, when she's with Danrich at the, the dance club, like he really comes on to her like sort of yeah it's very sexual. aggressive sexual vibes and and she gets taken in by it and the, the other thing too is i hang on hang on i want to go back to that okay sure so later in the movie so he he seduces her whether it's through charm or beguilement mm-hmm. or whether she genuinely finds him attractive or whatever the reason may be and i'm not excusing any sort of magic that may be involved to co- coerce her do you think that he had sex with her or do you think he just bit the neck and turned her into the vampire i think he did i think he did as well i, I think that, that was the impression implied. i got that's yes and, and then that at the end of the movie she just doesn't remember any of it so yeah and and i think this know. is this sort of leans on that trope that you talked about where mm-hmm. i think at its core the vampire mythology if we assume that it started with bram stoker's dracula it, it is really very much this male wish fulfillment of, you know, this this superior man that can charm the woman he wants and have his way with her. And it's like you look at it by today's standard and you're like, wow, this is absolutely terrifying. And for all the for like for all the wrong reasons, like this, this, this character is a, a hardcore capital P predator. And but in so many of these movies, they make it seem romantic oh, well, once he beguiles her, she realizes she's really in love with him and she wants to do these things. It's like, that's BS. Like, he's using his magic. He's making her do things she doesn't want to do. And I think this movie, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. He uses his powers to charm her. She clearly is in love with, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember. Charlie? Charlie? Is that his name? She is. She's yeah. professed her love for Charlie numerous times. Like you said, she talks about how she's a virgin or it's implied she's a virgin and she she tries to give her virginity and, and have her first time be with her true love, Charlie. Yet it's certainly implied that she instead has sex with this vampire, probably against her will, probably because he has charmed her in a way that she had no uh, no recourse against. But again, the, the way this movie comes together in the 80s, oh, that's just swept under the rug. We don't have to worry about that. And it's like by today's lens – that is not acceptable at all. And yet you have movies like 
the Twilight franchise where it's like vampires is so romantic. All the girls want to be with the boy vampires. It's like, really? Do you understand where this mythology has come from? So I don't know. <laughs> Good point. So one thing that I that I thought about before you mentioned that was, OK, so there's the holy water, the crosses, daylight, all that stuff that we talked about. Yep. But what the heck's with the garlic? Because that's yeah, an never old vampire that. trope. And even Charlie, he puts garlic around the house. Like, what, what, what was that for? I, it, I don't know. That's that's just one of those things that's been a part of the vampire mythology. I'm sure it stems back to some pagan ritual of some sort. But, yeah, that's, again, even in, in again, I'm going to refer to Dungeons & Dragons because that's the, the fantasy tropes I know. The vampires as monsters in Dungeons & Dragons have very specific lists of strength and weaknesses. And garlic, I don't believe, has ever once been factored into the game rules just because it's so dumb so outrageous like even things like in the game they've talked about things like the running water because again if you go back to the dracula myth there was a whole thing about running water and vampires can't cross running water blah 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 but garlic never once have oh do i remember yeah. ever seeing anything about that one thing that's not a vampire trope but it's it's sort of a typical movie formula that gets used and that's when Charlie brings the cop to Dandridge's house to meet oh, Nicole yeah. and, and the cop asks about the missing hookers, mm-hmm. there's a moment where it could go either way. I mean, uh, let's be honest. If the cop looks around, probably going to find something and catch these guys. Sure. You know? And then Charlie mentions a coffin in the basement and he's like, yeah, Dandridge is a vampire. And of course, the cop starts laughing. And there's always that scene in these kind of movies where Everyone thinks the main character is crazy. Yeah. And therefore, he's left to his own to try and fight the evil monster because no one believes him, you know? Yep. So. But what I found when I rewatched this was the way the main character tries to convince others that he knows what's what was ridiculous. Like there again, maybe it's just 30 to 40 years of experience looking back. There are better ways to convince police to look for clues and just blurting out he's a vampire of course they're gonna think you're crazy like that's a ridiculous answer and i think in in a more modern retelling because honestly i don't remember the specifics about the remake but i think there are better ways to convince the authorities that they need to investigate without actually just flying off the handle and going oh he's a vampire oh my god he's a creature of mythology it's like yeah you're crazy so that's just one of my little pet peeves that I thought when I watch this again, I'm like, really? You're just going to blurt that out right away? Like that just, I don't know, it seems dumb. So I would say even with all the tropes, you know, mm-hmm. and all the, the the fact that it's a send up, there was a few gotcha moments in this movie. Sure. Like I think there was a few really suspenseful, I think scary parts when Charlie thinks he hears something at night and he's looking around the house. There's nothing there. And then all of a sudden, Dandridge appears in the mom's room and the music mm-hmm. note blares like that makes you yeah. jump. And when Dandridge is with that that gorgeous woman in the window and he goes to bite her neck and Charlie's watching from the window and just before Dandridge bites her, he looks up and sees Charlie looking at him. <laughs> that was like really scary because like, there's like this terror on Charlie's face and it's like, Oh, you're in deep trouble now. Like yep. the guy just saw you, right? And then Danrich pulls the string for the blinds, and he's got these like long fingers and sharp nails. <laughs> like I thought that was good. You didn't like the special effects, though. You said, eh? Well, I mean, they were of their time. Um, God, I thought they were. I, I, I thought. 
I thought they were okay. I think that I, I'm sure that they had budgetary restrictions. They could only do so much. And I, knowing what 80s special effects looked like, they were very much of their time. And so I was looking at them when I rewatched this movie this week. I was looking at them with today's lens. And I mean, obviously today they would do 90% of that stuff with computer animation. It's unlikely they would do any practical effects. So from the point of view of practical effects, I, I mean, we've talked about this many times. Practical effects usually end up looking better than digital effects yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe it's just the way that our brains work because we grew up in an era where practical effects were were the norm. But a lot of the practical effects that we saw, especially towards the end of the movie when everybody started to show their true sort of quote unquote monster form, they just looked a little silly to me. I didn't, I didn't particularly find them scary. Um, I, I, I don't know. They just very much looked like prosthetics on top of a real person. Whereas I think that's the advantage of digital is you can really um, take advantage of proportion and you can, you know, modify the way a person looks with a computer in ways that you just, you can't do with practical effects. Like makeup on top of a real person has to look bigger than the real person. Cause you're adding it on. And I, I maybe it's just that I'm looking at it with a more well, acute eye. I, I get the scene at the end, like you're saying with Amy. Yeah. Like that big mouth with all the teeth yeah. I get. But when Danridge starts to turn into that ugly vampire, in Charlie's mm -hmm. room and then he gets the pencil in the hand yeah and the mom yeah. wakes up and then, then he starts to turn back into a human that was some great makeup and and, pretty, and, yeah. and the thing is those special effects weren't done by like Rick Baker or Tom Savini or anyone like that they just although they really definitely were crew. reminiscent they were yeah. reminiscent of those of and obviously yeah. you, you, you know if you're an up and coming artist you look to the masters and you try and duplicate their work so I, I get that but yeah to your point they weren't done by these best of the best I could talk about this movie for another like six hours but I want to talk about the script you know because okay. like, I love the script and like we said it has all the vampire tropes in it and it's it also plays on sort of the traditional film formulas you know we talked about you know how no one believes the lead character and all that yes. stuff. But, you know, I think I really like when he's watching Fright Night, you know, which is basically a, a satire of Elvira's Mistress of the Dark. Yes, right? for sure. And he gets this idea that this legendary TV vampire killer, Peter Vincent, he's going to help him, right? And of course, Peter Vincent thinks he's crazy too, you know? But the thing is, he's just been fired. Right, like, because yeah. no, no kids watch Poor vampire ratings. movies anymore, right, yeah. and all that, which is itself a nod to the fact that they're making this movie about vampires for a younger audience in '85. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so he gets fired, so he needs the money, and then Amy and Evil go to talk to Peter Vincent, and they try to, you know, get him to go to Dandridge and have him drink the tap water and everything like that. The thing was in that scene when when Amy and Evil go to see him, it just could have been this little throwaway line. But it ends up being my favorite line and probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. When they see some of the artifacts, you know, the props from his old movies, and he yes. grabs that little statue and he just looks off to the side for a second. And he's like, it was one of my favorite rules. There's something about that. Like it just, he captures the, the pathos and, and the memories and, and not just of an actor that's reminiscing about a role, but really like for anybody at all that longs for, a time, you know, just in the past when they, I don't know, just now that they're older and they've started to be like past their prime, it just, I just think it's a great scene. I think it's a great delivery of the line. 
And I'm, I'm t- Roddy McDowell should have been nominated. Should have been nominated for an Oscar for this. If there's nothing else for that one line, but uh, yeah. I don't know. So I, I really forgot how much I love this movie. I, I really loved it a lot. So I think I think I just want to mention before we uh, sounds mm-hmm. like we're wrapping up here. No, no, um, I want to I want to just quickly talk about Amanda Beers. Now she's not my favorite performer in the world, but I think she did a good job in this. We already mentioned Fraternity Vacation, which uh, has the the actor who played Evil, so she's in that as well. And of course, most people probably remember her from Married with Children as yeah. Marcy, the neighbor to the Bundys, uh, Marcy Rhodes, Marcy she Darcy, was married later to Ted years. McGinley. Yeah. Yeah, she was in, I'm just looking at here, 259 episodes of Married with Children. I got to think she was in just about, if not every episode. And that's certainly, you know, that's her career-defining role. She was in that that show for 11 seasons. And love her or hate her, I mean, I think most people that are of our generation, that's how you know her. And, right. you know, I think, I think anyone who could be on a show for 11 seasons that runs that long, like, you've got to have some talent. So I think we just need to give her a little shout-out and acknowledge that, in in Fright Night, uh, you know she played the she played the damsel in distress, but they did give her a little more to work with in that. She wasn't just the quote unquote you know the sort of the lowest lane. Oh help me, help me! It was like she she had some ideas, she had mm. some some insights on how to how to tackle the various problems, and then of course she ended up eventually becoming the object of the affection of the vampire, and she got to wear the special makeup at the end. So I I think that we would do it this this uh, review a disservice if we don't at least give her a shout out for her role in this and I think that the movie may not have been su- as successful. No, that's fair. If, if yeah. without someone with at least a little bit of talent in that mm-hmm. role, and I think she had it. She, you know, she did a good job given what I she had, she did, given yeah. her age, and given yeah. her experience. I think she did as good a job as can be expected with that role, and uh, I think I think we deserve to give her a nod. So, Amanda Beers, shout out. Oh, I, I agree. Again, I, I think the script is really good. You know, like there's that scene when when Peter Vincent goes to the house and then realizes that the guy, this guy's a vampire because he, he's so spooky, drops that mirror and then then they leave and Dan Rich walks and steps on something that cracks. Yeah. It's a little and it's the little glass. piece of the mirror. So he yeah. knows that Peter Vincent. Oh, yeah. Knows. And to me, that's when the movie starts to get really good. Yeah, I agree. And, and then Charlie knows that Peter knows and everybody's spooked and they're always they're like they're all afraid. Right. And because they realize Dandridge is a threat, right? And then there's the scene right after that where Dandridge stalks evil in the alley. That yes. whole scene freaked me out. Yes. Like, like there's smoke in the alleys. And, and no matter where evil goes, Dandridge is there. You just know he's not getting out of there. And I yeah. remember watching this movie in the movie theater when it first came up. And, and, and that scene when, when Dandridge appears right behind him out of the shadows, like that was a real sort of jump out of your seat moment in the theater. But the thing is, instead of just attacking him, Danridge doesn't do that, right? He's a vampire. He seduces him. Yes. Like he yeah, mentioned, I thought, he mentioned I thought that was very I thought well it was done. so good. He's like, yeah. you know, you don't fit in at school. People make fun of you. All you have to do is take my hand. Of course, the, the, this probably began his slow transformation into gay porn. Oh my. But anyway, and then... He gets Amy in the nightclub, and then and then I love that scene because he says he says it to Brewster. He's like, "I don't want to kill you, Charlie. I want you to bring Peter Vincent to my house tonight." Yeah. And it yeah. just sets up that whole last scene, which is like that was so good. So the thing is, Dan Richard has Amy. He's got evil. Peter Vincent is too chicken to help out. And in that typical script, you know, the movie formula, 
everything goes to hell in the second act. Of right? course. It's just perfect. And then I thought it was interesting. So Charlie tries to convince Peter to help him out. And there's another great, great scene with Roddy McDowell there. Because not only is he scared, but he realizes that his entire life as Peter Vincent, the vampire killer, it's all been a lie. His whole life has been a sham. Still no Oscar for Roddy, though. And even after that scene. Um, and then, like you, like you said, there was that, that whole scene where Danrich takes Amy upstairs. I thought the one cool thing was when he bites, finally bites her neck and there's those two streams of blood. Yes. Going down. Like, that was just so cool. I yeah. don't know. It's nice. A nice little touch. Nicely done. I thought it was pretty cool. So Peter Vincent shows up. But the thing is, you don't, they don't show what his motivation is to finally make him decide to show up, you know, but they don't have to. No. Because McDowell lets you know everything. And all he does is just give one look in his eye. And that's to redeem himself. To basically validate his entire persona as Peter Vincent, the vampire killer. He just looks and you just know, right? And and then I love when Dandridge says, he says to, to mock him, welcome to Fright Night. Yes, yes. For real. And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> this is going down, man. And then Peter Vincent, what does he do? He runs out. Yeah. And he goes to the Mrs. Brewster's house and... And there's another great scene because evil's there and he turns into the wolf, which is another vampire trope, which I guess yes. we missed, right? And he gets mm-hmm. that spike in his heart and he dies. Like that to me, that scene was just Well, hold on. Amazing. He doesn't die. He's defeated. But then right. then Peter Vincent, uh, in you know, obviously in his moment, removes the stake, which in in vampire mythology, if you follow that kind of thing, as long as the stake is in the heart. The creature is has been uh, uh, subdued, but not necessarily killed, uh-huh. and that's I think exactly what happens because at the very end of the movie, uh, you see the the glowing red eyes from right. across the, the the way, and you hear that quote from early in the movie where he's like, "Brewster, you're so cool," to mm-hmm. imply that those eyes belong to evil, although we don't actually see who it is. You know it is. That's the implication, and you think back and you go, "That's right, we saw him quote unquote die," but then Peter Vincent removes the stake. Did he die? Because a lot of these undead creatures can regenerate. And it's like, that's part of the vampire myth is if the stake is in the heart, you're done. But if the stake is removed, the powers can can continue onward. And I actually just learned this week that they made a sequel to this movie. Yes, I don't know they what did. it's about. I never saw it. Never but I got to think it's got to do with the character of evil. It had to be. Yeah, I had no desire to see that. But you're right, because when they, they pull that thing out of evil, like he turns back into human form. And even then, I thought the special effects were amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. They, and the actors, too. Like, they, they show the pain. Like, evil shows the physical pain. Mm-hmm. And and the emotional pain that's on Peter Vincent's face. Like, not only does he feel sorry for this kid who's dying, you know, in front of him or whatever. So he thinks. He realizes, though, for the first time in his life, he's Peter Vincent the Vampire Killer. But he actually just killed somebody. Yeah. You know, like he sees the consequences of like driving a stake through someone's heart. Again, McDowell is just so good in this role. I don't know. And then the thing is, when the scene is over, it's just evil left there dead, right? Mm-hmm. Although, you know, judging by the direction of his career, it's it's not the last time he'd be naked and impaled on film. Oh, my. Anyway, um... There were, we talked about like you know a lot of the tropes and stuff, but I love the shot that that low shot 
of Peter Vincent approaching the house with all the mm-hmm. fog and the smoke and everything. I thought it was a great composition. And then Billy Cole, we haven't talked about, he shoots him. And up until this point, I wasn't sure, like, is Billy a vampire? Like, what's what's that guy? You know, like, what well, they, he- they specifically say he walks in the daylight. He's not a vampire. I guess the idea is that he's some other sort of minion or familiar because the implication, like, at one point he sees um, when they first see Amy's character, mm-hmm. the, the, the companion references the painting and says something like, oh, it looks just like her. Or he says something, I can't remember, but the implication is that it's almost like he knew the original woman. Again, it sort of goes back yes. to the Dracula trope of years and years previous, there was this woman that I was in love with and there was some sort of terrible whatever. And and so he he implies that he is familiar with that, whether it's because the master has explained it or whether it's because he was alive and witnessed it is not completely clear. But yeah, I always got the sense that he was some sort of familiar yeah and then like he gets shot multiple times but he doesn't die and it's not until they put a stake in his heart and then he dies so it makes you wonder like is he a vampire i don't know yeah i don't Um, know i thought it was interesting too uh during those scenes when when peter looks out the windows and dandridge is like moving along the outside of the house like that's right out of bram stoker's dracula Mm -hmm. in the novel yeah because in the novel he would like walk up and down the side of the house like a spider remember and then charlie gets bit on the arm but that's one vampire trope I'm not sure about. Like, what are the rules for that? Because, like, does it have to be in the neck for you to turn yeah, into a vampire? Like, I know in The Walking Dead, if you get bit anywhere, like, you turn into a zombie. But I don't know. And then the last scene down in the in the basement, when they start breaking out the, the glass, the, the painted glass windows to let the sunlight in. This yeah. was used again in From Dusk Till Dawn, which, by mm-hmm. the way, I just watched again this week. It was on. Um, it was on cable, and I watched it. With my wife and she hated it, but of course she did. <laughs> but the, the 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 practical effects again when when Danrich dies in that scene, he gets like thrown against the wall, and it's like his skeleton is there, and it's like wrapped in flames. I thought it was just so much better than CGI. I I would be curious to see the difference in the effects between this movie and that Colin Farrell one, like in the scene by scene kind of thing. I would probably sure. think these ones are better, but I don't know. But anyway, do you think this movie is dated, really, when you look back on it overall? Well, I mean, I do, but I think it's of its time. I think it's very much in keeping with sort of the 80s horror genre, which I think is encapsulated in and of itself. And I think it's a pretty good example, although be it a tame example of that kind of film, I think it works for what it was, especially at the time when it came out. And I think... You know, for me personally, I mean, I didn't I, I'm not a big fan of the horror genre. Not that I really classify this yeah, as a capital H horror, but I, I've seen this movie a bunch. I've probably seen this movie five or six times. Um, and I would I would probably give it like maybe a six and a half out of ten. It was OK. It's not I didn't think it was great, but I think it's certainly worth watching once if you've never seen it before. Um, but for most people, I think once is enough. And yeah, I think six and a half is sort of where I would. I think this. it's held up pretty well. I would go higher than that. I I would give it an eight. I think it's wow. I think it's quite good. Um, on all the reasons that I mentioned, like with the sure. special effects, the script I thought was fantastic. Roddy McDowell's performance was outstanding. I liked all the vampire tropes. The fact that it's a send up, it's a horror, but it's not. It's there's so much going on in this movie. It's 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 highly entertaining. So I just. Yeah, I got to give it an eight. It's I, I love this movie. I think it's great. Okay. But anyway, on that note, let's have some fun 
with Caveman. All right, my man. It was over to you this week since it was my movie. So uh, what do you want to do to have some fun? All this right. Week? So a lot of actors and actresses have played vampires in their career. Oh, sure. A lot, a lot of very famous actors and actresses have played vampires in their career. So I want to know how well you remember which performers played vampires in which movies. So I'm going to give you the name of the performer. Okay. The character's name and the year the movie came out. And all I want you to give me is the name of the movie. Okay. Now I will, in a couple of examples, I may withhold some of those details just because it might be a little obvious, but I've got 15. Let's see how many you get out of 15. Okay. Probably not, man. And and I will. So you're going to give me the actor and then I've got to guess the movie that they're in and they played a vampire. Yes. Yes. I'll give you the actor, the character's name, the year the movie came out. So I'm going to give you three clues and all I need from you is the name of the movie. Now, in all fairness, this is going to be tough for you because a ridiculous amount of these took place in the nineties when vampire movies were like all the rage, but some of these things were pretty big. So even if you haven't seen the movie, I think you're going to have a pretty good chance of guessing them. So anyway, let's see how we do on these. All right. Johnny Depp played the vampire Barnabas Collins in 2012. In what movie? I have no idea. It was a remake of an old TV show, if that helps. Dark Shadows? Yes. Oh, my God. This is a total guess. Total, (laughs) total guess. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Go figure. All right. The exceptionally beautiful Kate Beckinsale Mm. played the vampire Celine in 2003 in what film franchise in more than one movie, but the first one came out in 2003. I remember Yancey mentioning this once and God, if I can remember what it was, it wasn't that league of extraordinary gentlemen or no, nope. was it Van Helsing? Nope. Oh, any other guesses? Nah, I don't know. Underworld. Underworld. Oh, okay. The first one was really good. The second one, less so. And then after that, they just did a bunch of crappy sequels. Yeah. All right. Uh, this one we mentioned just like 10 minutes ago. Salma Hayek played a vampire named Santenico Pandemonium oh, in 1996. It was, it was from Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. With the, with the, okay. with the, the white snake. Yeah. With the snake, oh, yes. Oh, God. Man, she looked movie. amazingly oh hot God, in that. She looked good in that. She never looked better than she oh did in that movie. Oh, my God. Yep. All right. Brad Pitt played a vampire named Louie in 1994 in what movie? Was it Interview with the Vampire? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Nicely done. Haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Paul Peewee Herman Rubens played a vampire named Amelian. In 1992, in what movie? No idea. It went on to become a very popular TV show in the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm sure it did, but I have no idea. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Catherine Deneuve played the vampire Miriam Oh, in that was in The Hunger. The Hunger. Yes, it was. Nicely done. All right. We mentioned this one. Colin Farrell played the vampire Jerry in 2011 in what movie? That was in Fright Night. That was in the remake of Fright Night. Good job. That was a gimme. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, thanks. All right. 
William, pardon me, Willem Dafoe played Max Shrek and was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in this 2000 movie. Mm, no idea. Shadow of the Vampire. Okay. I'll it was your word for it. It was really good. If you can find that on on streaming, you should find it. It was great. It was really really good. He deserved that Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Eddie Murphy played the vampire Maximilian in 1995 in what movie? Oh, I can see the I can see him. He had this long like leather cape thing on. I don't remember the name of the movie though. I remember seeing the picture. No idea. Vampire in Brooklyn. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That's how that makes sense. It was just okay. Yeah. All right. Here's a real easy one. Right over the plate for you. All right. Kiefer Sutherland played the vampire David in 1987. In what movie? The Lost Boys. Yes. That is a fantastic vampire movie. Yes, it was good. All right. A little newer for you. Robert Patterson, a.k.a. R-Pat, played Edward Cullen in the first installment of this franchise in 2008. As Was it um, Twilight? Yes, it was. I remember my wife like read like one of the books. She I read all the like, books. They were fun. The movie's less so. Yeah. Robert Patterson is going to be the new Batman, believe it or not. Oh, wow. That seems yeah. weird. He's actually a pretty good actor. He's been in a lot of great stuff. Yeah. All right. Next question. Gina Davis played the vampire Odette in this 1985 spoof comedy. Was it Earth Girls Are Easy? That's not the one I'm looking for, but no. she was in that movie. Oh, was it Transylvania, like, 6-5,000? Yes! Yes! Nicely done! <laughs> yes. Nicely nice. done. Okay, three more. All easy ones for you. Tom Cruise played the vampire Lestat in this 1994 film. Was it Bram Stoker's Dracula? It was not. Was I'll it an inter interview guess. with a vampire? Yes! Yeah. I thought I'd trick you getting you two mm. in the same movie. Okay. The last two, I'm only going to give you the performer in the year okay. because the character they played was the name of the movie. All right. The first one is Wesley Snipes in 1998. Oh, um, oh, I've not seen they it. They made three movies and there's a new was reboot coming out. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Nicely done. I haven't seen All it, right. but I've, yeah, okay. And, Didn't know he was And the last player. one, Possibly the easiest one I'm ever going to give you. Okay. In 1992, Gary Oldman played a vampire in this movie. That was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, it yes. was. Nice. Yes, it was. Nicely done. One, two, three. You only missed four out of the 15. You went 11 for 15. Nicely was, done. Was Bram Stoker's Dracula like, like the idea? I'm assuming that it was close to the the novel that's why they it was that. very very close what was, was the one with um oh i saw part of one that was with keanu reeves where he played oh the the english guy he was terrible that yeah. was bram stoker's dracula he's in that. oh yeah that wasn't good yeah he yeah, didn't play vampire though he just played the no no he played the, the 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 character near the beginning with the with the girlfriend yeah, yeah. parker i think is the yeah. character's name if i remember correctly jonathan harker yeah, right. so good. Nicely done. You did very well on those. Oh, I was worried okay. that some of them were a little too new for you, yeah. but uh, we mentioned a bunch of them during the course of the show, so that helps. That, yeah, that, that really certainly does. Well, well nicely guess, done. Guess what, Derek? 
it's time for us to call it a season around here. It's the end of season six. Nice. Like I mentioned, we're going to take a little break over the Christmas holidays. We're going to be back in the new year with season seven. And we'll probably kick things off with a retrospective look back on 2021. We did that last year. If you remember, I wrote a song for 2020. No promises that I'll do the same this year, but we'll see. I'll have to wait and see. So Chris, uh, for for our listeners that Mm -hmm. just can't get enough of me, I want to I want to do a quick promo and shout out that I'm actually going to be doing a guest spot on the Cinema Nine podcast next week. Oh, we our good guys. friend our good friend Michael Govier oh, on his awesome podcasts. Guys, yeah. They've asked me to come on, and we're going to do a movie review, and we're going to decide if the movie holds up or not because that's their whole shtick on. What movie? Well, you'll have to list. You'll have oh, to tune nice. into the Cinema Nine podcast to find out. Nice. But I will tell you, it is not a movie we have ever done on our podcast, which kind of tied my hands a lot because Maybe I didn't want to pick one they had done, and I didn't want to pick one we had done. So, if you want more caveman, you can listen to the Cinema Nine podcast between now and our next episode, Very and cool. I will be making a guest appearance. So, well, until next year. Or until you listen to Derek on the Cinema 9 podcast, I'll tell you what, I'm Chris McRoyne. On behalf of myself and Derek Myers, I want to say thanks for being here for our first six seasons. Can't wait to see you again for season seven right here on Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.